everyone, and welcome back to the Towards Data Science Podcast. Now, until recently, AI systems have been narrow. They've only been able to perform one specific task that they were explicitly trained for. While narrow systems are clearly useful, the holy grail of AI is, of course, to build more flexible and general systems. But that's not possible without good performance metrics that you can actually optimize for or that you can at least use to measure the generalization ability of a particular AI system. Somehow, we're going to have to figure out what single number needs to go up in order to bring us closer to generally capable agents. And that's exactly the question we'll be exploring today with Danajar Hafner, an AI researcher at Google Brain and a PhD student in AI at the University of Toronto. Now, Danajar has been studying the problem of performance measurement and benchmarking for RL agents with generalization abilities. And as part of that work, he recently released Crafter, a tool that can procedurally generate complex environments that are a lot like Minecraft, featuring resources that need to be collected, tools that can be developed, and even enemies that need to be avoided or defeated. Now, in order to succeed in a crafter environment, agents need to robustly plan, explore, and test different strategies that allow them to unlock certain in-game achievements, some of which are pretty complicated. Now, Crafter itself is part of a growing set of strategies that researchers are developing to figure out how we can benchmark the performance of general-purpose AIs, but it also tells us something interesting about the state of AI itself. Increasingly, our ability to define tasks that require the right kind of generalization abilities is becoming just as important as innovating on AI model architectures. Now, Nanajar joined me to talk about Crafter, reinforcement learning, and the big challenges facing AI researchers as they work towards general intelligence on this episode of the Taurus Data Science Podcast. <music> working on a whole bunch of different things, but what I really wanted to talk about today was some of your work in RL that I think is much more foundational, much more um, important than it might immediately seem from the outside, just because we'll be talking about your benchmarking work, trying to assess the performance characteristics of reinforcement learning agents, their generalization abilities, and um, this, this really is starting to seem like a, a hot field, and anyway, I'm really excited to dive into it, so thanks for making the time for this. Cool. I'm excited too. How do we come up with good measures of generalization ability for for RL agents specifically? But if you have thoughts about kind of general machine learning too, it'd be really interesting to hear. Measuring generalization, I would I would say, isn't that hard if you know what type. I mean, there's probably different ways to define generalization, different um, different aspects you want to generalize to. But at the end of the day, if you know what aspect of generalization you care about, you can just set up an environment where you're training on this, on like a holdout set of combinations, or like you're training on, on a set of combinations, and then you have some combinations held out, and that's what you're evaluating on. Um, so I, yeah, just evaluating it is perhaps not that difficult. I guess more defining it is the challenge, yeah. Yeah, like what do you, what types of generalization do we really need and um, for certain maybe long like long-term applications that we care about and it's probably not just visual distractors yeah well so on that note what, what how do you think about generalization because when i looked at your paper it was really interesting it was very um a very kind of applied definition that you seem to use where you're looking at you know does the agent learn to do these specific actions in this specific environment and it almost seems like those are proxies for something i just wonder if you've if you thought about like what is that that core thing that latent space definition of, of generalization let's say that you're drawing from when you come up with those definitions sure yeah so 
I think, I mean, first of all, Crafter is designed to evaluate a lot of different agent abilities and generalization is one of them, but there's also other, other categories um, like long-term memory and uh, yeah, like being able to survive and reusing sub-skills. There are a lot of repeated tasks. You have to collect the basic resources over and over again to build more and more complex tools. Um, but within the generalization, the, the main... Uh, the need for generalization comes from the procedural generation and from the randomness in in the creatures in the environment so you know like every map is is completely randomly generated so the agent won't know uh, where to find things and they can't memorize exactly what action sequence to use right in atari games if you don't use any um, any stochasticity uh, i think there is some some work showing that you know, sometimes these agents really latch onto tiny details that really shouldn't matter. Like whether the pixel in this corner is blue or red, and then it already knows whether it's in the first room or the second room. Um, you know, and of course that only works if it's really that deterministic and there's no sensor noise and anything. So in, in Crafter, the environment is randomized a lot. There's a lot of procedural generation. So the agent will never find itself in the same situation, but still it has to be able to you know, find water every uh, every minute so it doesn't uh, get too thirsty and then it has to find food. And then those are all different skills that need to be applied in different situations. And actually this, I think, a good opportunity to start talking a little bit more about Crafter. So like, yeah, what is Crafter and what are the main things you were hoping to measure using it? Crafter is, is a single environment that's set up in a way that makes it efficiently uh, efficient to use for research and the goal is to um, train an agent in Crafter once and then get out the whole spectrum of agent abilities. You're measuring performance across many tasks, but we're not doing that in a multitask setup. It's just a single reward function and the agent just tries to maximize that. But along the way, you know, there's this whole technology tree of things you can do. And some things depend on each other, other things are, in, uh, are independent. So you kind of have to, um, to explore everything, you need both deep and wide exploration there. Um, and at the end of the day, you get like at the end of the training run, you get the success rates on all of these achievements that each give you a reward of plus one during the episode, the first time you, you unlock them during the episode. Uh, so then you can see, you know, these are the tasks that require memory, these are the tasks that require more generalization and so on. And you can, um, you can see where your, where your agent is failing and where your agent is doing well. Um, and even if your agent is not a state-of-the-art thing, um, it, it gives you more than just a single number, right? Whether you can to, to tell whether you're state-of-the-art or not. It tells you, you know, these are the kind of, there's a bunch of easy tasks there as well. There's also a bunch of tasks that haven't really been solved yet by any current RL method. So even if you're just prototyping with new ideas, you would get a good feedback signal of how well your agent is doing. And, and one of the things I found really cool about Crafter too is it did come out very, uh, I'm trying to remember which one came out first, but it was around the same time that DeepMind came out with their um, open-ended learning leads to generally capable agents paper, where they, they did kind of, it, philosophically, it seemed like a, a almost the opposite approach where they're looking at a whole bunch of different environments and then trying to put agents in those environments and forcing them to kind of be good at, somewhat good at everything. Whereas Crafter is cool because it's sort of like this one very rich world. Um, I'm curious, like, how would you compare the two? What do you think think are sort of the strengths and weaknesses of, of either approach? 
of of having many different environments versus one yeah yeah um i mean at the it's almost there isn't that big of a difference at the end of the day right whether you think of them as separate environments or as one big environment with different rooms in the in mm. the environment there, there isn't that big of a difference um i think it's important for the agent to face a lot of different situations so you can do that either by designing a lot of levels or by just procedurally generating it and having the agent learn that distribution um i i do think if you're specifically interested in in this type of generalization then it makes a lot of sense to keep some holdout levels that are not from the same distribution as the training set. So that's something we're not, we don't have in Crafter uh, because that's not the specific focus of the environment. It's more like supposed to evaluate a lot of different um, abilities and you need a generally capable agent to do well at Crafter. But if you care about specific holdout generalization, then you should probably have a test set of environments that are different in some aspect from the training distribution. And when you're like one of the things with benchmarking too is, I mean, I imagine you want to pick a task that's hard enough that current AIs can't beat it or can't can't do as well as humans, but still easy enough that humans can do it or at least it's compatible with human abilities. Can you tell me a little bit about Crafter and and where it falls on that spectrum and sort of what what current state of the art RL can do with Crafter where human ability is? Yeah, it's that was a pretty fun aspect of designing the environment actually because you have to balance the difficulty right. You want to see some learning progress. Like if it if all the current methods are just flat, then it's a bit hopeless. You know, like maybe yeah. we should work on simpler environments first. Um, on the other hand, of course, if it's too easily solved, then it's not not an interesting benchmark for pushing pushing performance further. Um, so I did a lot of testing of the game, just playing it myself and seeing how difficult it was. And then uh, also training some agents and seeing where they get stuck. It's designed to be pretty challenging, but possible to solve for humans. So if you played it for the first time, there's no way you would solve it. But if you practiced for maybe for a day, you would be able to solve it most of the time. Right? I, I think it's important for RL benchmarks, even if it's, you know, crafters completely unrealistic in terms of the visual appearance, right? If we compare it to, to the real world. Um, but even for games, I think it's important, you know, we want to benchmark our RL agents on things where humans also have some learning potential on, right? So if you think about a memory task, then it, or like any, any task really, we want it to be something where a human starts and say, like, oh, this is hard, right? And yeah. then after practice, after enough practice, the human score should be able to go up. That means there is some actual learning happening. Um, and, and it's an actual, it's a challenge for a human. Now you're reminding me of, of, of a question I had looking at the paper too, because like Crafter is, it looks a lot like Minecraft. It doesn't look exactly like Minecraft. There's some important differences. Um, what are some of the little kind of the key differences and, and what do they tell us about what's hard for, for these agents? So it's all in 2D. Um, it's still visual inputs, but Crafter is in 2D and Minecraft is obviously in 3D. And that helps you reduce the horizons a bit and also make the perception problem a lot easier, right? Like in Crafter, perception isn't really that big of an issue. Um, right. and, and of course, 3D perception is an unsolved problem. And we would like to extract objects and have them be temporally co uh, consistent and interact sparsely and do all these things. And I think that's a really exciting research that I'm also involved in uh, to some extent. But 
At the same time, there are these really long horizon behaviors that maybe require memory or long horizon credit assignment, right? Like yeah. um, going through the whole technology tree to get a certain item or um, there's one that's not even very deep in the tree, which is just to eat a fruit. So, but you have to uh, plant a, a sapling first. And if you wait for like a thousand steps and, and that's pretty hard to discover, um, especially if there's creatures around it and if they shoot at your plant, then it's, it's gone. So, uh, so there are a lot of these um, challenges in terms of, you know, long temporal horizons of one, uh, one form or another and generalization to new situations that are present in Minecraft, but they're kind of overshadowed almost by the 3D perception problem. And so Crafter lets you work on those um, without having the, the perception problem. And as a result, you can train agents much faster to, to an interesting performance level and make improvements on different algorithms. Yeah, I guess the wish list is long to get to AGI, so you got to parse it out into in, into subcomponents. Um, right. Yeah, I mean, and, and this is exactly why I think benchmarking is so important today. And I'd love to get your thoughts on this aspect. I mean, like I I've kind of I perceive that I've seen the field of RL move towards more and more emphasis on benchmarking as algorithms have gotten so good that you can kind of point them in a particular direction, and like they'll they'll pretty reliably be able to master task with some iteration, like. You know, you, you define a benchmark and then within a couple of years it gets smashed or even a couple of months. And so in some sense, we're, we're limited more by our ability to like point these things in the right direction to choose interesting tasks for them to work on, which arguably is what we see with language modeling too. Do you agree with that framing or? Um... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There is, I mean, the, the defining the right benchmarks is that's posing the right, right questions, right? That's right. really important for directing the, the research community. Um, I mean, they, you're saying, well, they get solved in a, in a, in a couple of years. Um, they probably do because they were designed to get solved in a couple of years, right? right. Yeah. I could easily design a benchmark that won't get solved in the next 10 years. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a sweet spot, of course, of um, something that's, that seems promising enough that we can make some progress on now. And, and yeah, I, I totally agree. It's important to set, set up the right benchmarks and also to make them easy to use and make them accessible to people because um, some environments need a lot of compute or they are really, really difficult to set up or can't be run on some, uh, some clusters. And that's all like research time wasted all around the world. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, or there's a license um, requirement or something. I thought it was really awesome that that Mujoko is free um, for everybody now, because I, people I've worked with at the University of Toronto here, um, you know, they've, they've wasted days just trying to get the license set up on different servers and all, all that. So when you talk about, you know, you can define benchmarks that won't get shattered in, in like 10 years or something like, something like that. Um, yeah, I do feel like there's something interesting intrinsically about benchmarks for that reason. It, it seems to tell us something about what the current state of the art is. It seems to tell us something about the frontier. Um, so through that lens, like, how do you think about Crafter? What does it tell us about what's easy today in RL, what's hard, and the achievements that are going to be unlocked next in, in a Crafter-like environment? I, I think generalization is actually a, a pretty big aspect of it because a lot of the achievements can sometimes be unlocked if you're, if you're pretty lucky. Mm. Learning from that to unlock them reliably is really hard. And we need to put in the, the right inductive biases into our agents 
to uh, to have this generalization ability. And the inductive biases piece, like I at least I, I, I take it to mean when you look at a screen and there's like a big mean looking skeleton thing that's shooting something at you. Um, you kind of, as a human, you know, like, oh, I've played games before, I've interacted with hostile-looking creatures, I can infer that probably this is, like, a dangerous thing that I should avoid. Um, whereas, you, so you don't actually have to learn that from getting hit a bunch of times by an arrow. Um, is, is that kind of the aspect that you're, you're uh, shining a spotlight on there? I mean, of course, humans have more prior knowledge when they go into a game and play it, but I don't think that's actually that, that big of a problem. Um, first of all, when I watch people play Crafter for the first time, they all get hit by arrows a couple of times. Mm. Um, maybe not because they want to, but, but because they have to learn how to avoid them. And the agent also learns pretty quickly that that's a bad thing. Mm. And, and so, of course, the agent has to catch up with uh, those human uh, priors in the beginning. But then, I, yeah, I mean, it's still fair game if you give it enough uh, experience to interact with the environment. The arrows is probably a bad example because it's it's such a, a direct bit of feedback. But like notoriously Moctezuma's Revenge, when you look at Atari games, is, is an example of where those biases or those priors really kick in, where there's like a key that you got to get, and then the key unlocks a door. And if you're a human, you see a key, you see a door, and you can kind of put two and two together thanks to your priors, whereas an AI is just like, you're basically putting a, a big barrier between the cause and effect. Um, so is, is that something that you think would, would kind of play similarly with uh, an environment like Crafter with some of these tech tree things where you have to unlock? To, to some extent, perhaps. It, it depends how much the human knows about the environment going in, right? If you tell them these are all the possible items, if you show them the tech tree, that helps a lot. Mm, right. If not, in, in just in terms of wall clock time, like training an agent on my GPU on one computer and having my friend play on the other computer and seeing who gets a diamond first, um, I mean, the diamond is pretty hard for trained agents right now. Um, I've seen it happen, but definitely like, you know, below 1% success rate. So it's, it's a good challenge to work on. But um, I, I wouldn't say that the human necessarily finds it without knowing that they, they can and knowing what all the things are in the environment, all the different tools. So uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's an exploration challenge. And Perhaps if we're talking about Montezuma, which is actually a really hard game for humans, it's, mm. it's actually pretty challenging. Um, but maybe not so much because of the high level reasoning that's needed and more because you have to be very precise and not get shot by the laser beams and you know, jump over all these, over the skull on the first screen. There's only a pretty small gap and you have to time everything right. So it's kind of, kind of like oddly challenging for the wrong reasons. Um, compared to what we were trying to use it for in, in RL. But nevertheless, it's still a good environment to test exploration. And even though those are things that maybe a human doesn't really have to explore as much, you know, there's other things that humans have to explore as much. So as long as you're not putting in Montezuma-specific biases into your algorithm, um, I think can still be a useful benchmark. So. I think it's it's better to or more important to um, to prevent some common failure modes like failure of generalization, right? Like attending to a single pixel value, that that that's a failure mode of generalization, and we want to design benchmarks where that's not possible because there's enough randomness happening in the environment, right? Maybe right. just a little bit of observation noise probably helps in this particular example. 
Um, but also memorizing an exact room layout that may not be what we want. Uh, so then we can randomize that with procedural generation. I, I think we just want to be a bit careful about thinking about, you know, what is the easiest way to solve this environment? Are there any shortcuts there that I didn't think of? Um, and then make sure that we can get rid of them in the environment. What have you observed about agent behavior, especially for, let's say, like cutting edge architectures in the craft environment? What kinds of things do they tend to learn that have surprised you? Um, yeah, we, we have a, a section in the paper, actually, talking about these emergent behaviors. Um, so I, I haven't seen any degenerate behaviors. Um, so that's good. And there are a couple of interesting ones. So for example, there, there's a day and night cycle. Over time, uh, you know, after maybe a minute of play, it starts to get dark and then more monsters are coming up. And it's if the agent is good at fighting them, it could survive, but it's easier to just hide somewhere in the cave. So the agent actually ends up learning to um, search for caves on the map and then open them up, dig through the wall, and then close it and then sleep there. Oh, wow. So that is a lot of planning. Yeah. I mean, the, the agents I'm training, they are using th this particular one. It's a Dreamer v2 agent, so it's using a world model. Uh, but it's not doing online planning in the situation in, in the moment. It's only using the world model to generate... Um, as a replacement for the environment to generate more experience and then just train a, a fully amortized policy on that. So when you're running it in the environment, in the actual environment, you're just feeding in the observation into the world model and then into the, into the actor and you get an action in a single forward pass. So it's all kind of distilled. And, and you, I guess you do see, uh, I guess, fewer models making it all the way down the tech tree, like that is still a, a pretty uh, serious limitation for current systems. Yeah, it is. So we ran a bunch of baselines and they can, yeah. So it is definitely challenging to get high success rates on many of the achievements. Some of the achievements are pretty easy. You know, there's like two or three where even the random agent gets them decently often. Um, but most of them, you really, yeah. I mean, current methods sometimes find them, um, but kind of more through luck and then they don't learn to reliably solve them because they don't have this generalization ability to um to see it once or twice and then apply it to the next situation next time where the the mountain is on the other side of the map and you know that there's a forest here instead of a lake and then but you know the skills should still apply if there's still an iron ore here then i can still go and mine it so um i i mean it makes sense to also study generalization in more complicated setups sometimes. Um, but at the end of the day, all these things are to improve sample efficiency. And we can study, you know, I personally, I'm not that convinced that, for example, to like transfer learning is that necessary as a separate evaluation um, setup from just training in a complicated environment where there are many different things for the agent to do. And it has to transfer from previous skills to new ones. And if you measure sample efficiency by saying, you know, you're only allowed to do a, a million steps here, uh, then you can actually evaluate that too. And there are reasons where you are like cases where you want to evaluate transfer learning separately, like sim to real, right? That's a very practical uh, scenario. We want to train in a simulator and then have a real robot do something in the world. Um, but maybe, you know, training on one Atari game and transferring to the other and those kind of, those kind of things, I don't know how, um, yeah, I, I think we don't really need that as a setup that much. 
Th that's really interesting because it, it does kind of contrast a little bit with what we're seeing in deep learning more generally, like in, in language, where it kind of seems like transfer learning, uh, I, I guess you could cast the problem in a similar way, or you could think of it as being a similar problem where, for example, when you're training a system like GPT-3 on a huge data set, you're kind of doing a similar thing where some parts of that data set will include translations between English and French, some parts of it will include writing novels, and like the to some degree, if you think of GPT-3 as an agent, an embedded agent or something, uh, you end up getting effectively an, an analog for, for what you're seeing right now with, with Crafter. Like, would you agree with that uh, analogy? Yeah. yeah, that's a cool perspective. Um, and I, I also think in NLP, it makes sense to have, have the setup on top of what you're describing within just, you know, um, fitting the model to a big data set with all kinds of tasks hidden in the data set somehow. Um, additionally, we also want to be able to, you know, take a general model and then specialize it for a specific application. It's just that if you're training an agent, you're usually, you're, you're in an online learning setting. Right? I mean, the terminology, some people uh, mean something else by that, but at least you keep getting new data and you can, you can keep exploring the world and you can keep doing like better at the task. So, um, you know, it's like, in, in application domains, we more often have this divide between there's a big pre-training phase and then, and then we want to do translation with it. And then if we want to do something else with it, we probably wouldn't specialize the translation model further. We would go back to the general one. Like, do you think that um, this idea of, of scaled models and, and basically, you know, uh, foundation models, as they're sometimes called, the GPT-3s, the, the Megatrons, et cetera, um, do you think that there's going to be an actual, like, merging of that with uh, with DeepRL, let's say constructing very complex world models, ontologies and so on? Or like right now is, is RL just like really focused on its own thing? Is this generality and, and uh, procedural generation of environments, is that kind of more, do you see that being more the focus? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I, I thought about this and it's like, yeah, why? I mean, intuitively, yes, we should just train a giant world model that learns how, how the world behaves um, and then well you can't just use that if you want to do control with it you have to specialize it because the model doesn't know it doesn't distinguish between the controllable randomness in the world and the uncontrollable randomness right? let's say you have a video of or you have a scene with multiple robots in a factory and your job is controlled as one robot um, you, so you can't immediately use this model for planning Otherwise, you, you would end up being too optimistic. You would kind of think that all the other robots will help you do your task, but they won't. So, so you need the specialization steps. And there's also some, some ideas around already um, for how to do that, but they haven't really been scaled up much, I think. And on the other hand, um, why don't we really have foundation models in RL yet? I think one reason is that a lot of the evaluation domains are still pretty toy. Um, or maybe not toy, they are challenging in some ways, but they are also very different from, from the real world in some ways as well. Mm. So let's say, you let's say you train a foundation model um, on real video. It might not be that helpful for solving Atari games, right? Right. Um, or perhaps even craft it, even though there's more interesting generalization necessary there. And um, it's still visually very, uh, very different from from real world video data sets that we have. 
and one day we'll be able to train on all of YouTube and it'll have all the gameplay of all the streamers on it as well. And then there will be some, some transfer there. But um, yeah, I, I think we will, on one side, we'll see the RL community move more and more towards visually realistic environments. And on the other side, maybe then the foundation models have a bit more of a chance of actually being helpful. It does start to make me think about that, that conversation we had about priors where you know, you've got the human being that leverages what a, let's say you go to StarCraft 2 or something and you look at a particular, a particular unit or structure in the game and you can kind of get a sense for what its purpose is or what gadget or weapon it might have at its disposal just because you've seen similar things in the real world. Again, you know, this doesn't seem like the critical thing because these agents can learn quite quickly how that works, but foundation models seem like they might provide that kind of cultural knowledge, that prior that helps give a leg up to these systems during training? I think so, totally. It's just that right now, most of the agents are already not very data efficient. So that's why I think having this human prior isn't even that important for a lot of the standard evaluate, like standard benchmarks, at least. Right. There's definitely environments where, I mean, you can always set something up, right? And there's probably some... There's probably a lot of real-world applications as well where, where this could really help. Um, but at the end of the day, current RL methods are still quite data inefficient uh, in a lot of cases. So, uh, so then catching up with the human priors is only the first fraction of learning. And do you think data efficiency is, is a really like one of the key next targets for RL systems? And we saw Efficient Zero come out recently, which was sort of played into the story. I don't think it's necessary. I think it's interesting to push data efficiency. Um, but it's also interesting to just push final performance with highly distributed setups. Um, right. there, there is a trade-off there, which is the more distributed computing you do, the more complex your whole training infrastructure gets and the harder it will be to, for other people to replicate. So um, yeah, I, I think it does make sense to focus on sample efficiency and especially also compute efficiency, develop or at least you know, have a bit of a of a pull towards methods that are easy to run by everybody uh, doing research in in RL, because then you know if I publish a method that other people can use, they will build on top of it if it ends up working well, and and then there's a lot more progress than I could create myself as as an individual researcher, right? So that's why I'm actually a bit skeptical of these super large distributed RL. Um, demos or showcases because it's like, I mean, there, there have been enough of those now to, to know that with a huge amount of data, we can solve a lot of things with RL right. um, that almost nobody can replicate. But I don't know if we have to do our research for new methods at this scale, right? Like yeah. probably we can do them at a, at a single GPU scale as well. And the, the findings there will transfer to the highly distributed setting as well to, to a good extent. And do you think, uh, I, I don't know if, like how much time you spent thinking about Efficient Zero, but, but do you think that this idea of, as I understand it, what they really did in the paper was trade data for compute, like really kind of lean into having an agent imagine different scenarios at each step, like really try to, try to model very hard and think very hard about each next step. Um, as opposed to getting a ton of data. And in that way, sort of imitating some of the things that humans might do. You know, if you're learning how to play soccer, for example, like you know, you've, you've kicked a ball before, you kind of know what it, 
what it might do and you can model forward like okay if i kick it this way i don't know mu zero already had the mu zero reanalyze variant that reuses the replay buffer many many times um so i think there's like a, a ratio between environment steps and training steps of right you know, like 99 to 1 or something um so yeah you're, you're spending a lot of compute um to improve the model and that's generally what we're seeing with world models. So for Dreamer as well, um, you can you can just crank up compute and your model will get more and more sample efficient. At some point, the question is, do you want to wait that long to do all that training? Right. Um, but yeah, especially if you have, if it's a real world application where you can't speed up the simulator anymore, then that makes a lot of sense. Or if you have enough accelerators that you can go distribute it for your training um, or at least multi-GPU or train on like a slice of multiple TPU cores, then you can be a lot, lot faster, both in like, you know, you don't suffer in wall clock time and you gain a lot in terms of data efficiency in the environment. Um, I, I think the most interesting part of the efficient Mu0 compared to Mu0 was that they integrated representation learning into it because that always seemed missing in Mu0 and it's one of the reasons Mu0 is even though it's achieving really high performance asymptotically, it's not very data efficient. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that just, and I think they tried at the time, but now somebody has done, done it quite well and, and tuned everything nicely. And um, yeah, so it's a cool, a cool method. I, I'm still thinking, or I'm still a bit on the fence of whether the online planning is really necessary for Atari games. Um, I think there's some real world situations where you need real time planning just because the world is so complex that it will be really hard to generalize to a new situation. Um, and, and so you want to do some extra compute on the new situation at the right. spot, um, especially for non-stationary objectives like exploration where um, the objective of what is new changes all the time every time you collect some data. So then you want to do replanning um, like in, in our plan to explore paper, but I think, I mean, there we also only used offline planning. So online planning in the moment, I think makes a lot of sense for really like environments that are so complex that it's hard to generalize and, and for non-stationary objectives like exploration. For just maximizing reward in Atari, I think you might be able to get away with a much simpler algorithm that doesn't use the tree search. Yeah, and yeah, that, that does make sense. And it's one reason, I guess, to be kind of cautious about extrapolating too much an agent's performance on like Atari games uh, to the more general complex settings. But I guess one thing I, this does make me think about, you know, you mentioned this idea of uh, current approaches leaning more and more into compute over data. So getting a lot of data efficiency at the cost of large amounts of compute. Uh, do you think there's anything to the idea that our progress towards something like AGI down the road uh, really becomes the story of increasingly abundant availability of compute. Like, is, is all our, our algorithmic funny business really just a big dance that we're doing atop this kind of exponentially rising um, tide of just compute availability? Compute is very important. Yeah. So uh, I would, in most cases, I would take compute over algorithmic novelty. Um, not in all cases, though, because there are certain things like, for example, hierarchical planning that you would need exponentially more compute for. And so then you can have a hierarchical structure to help um, to help kind of 
break down this exponential complexity. So, yeah, I mean, neural nets and deep learning works insanely well and scales insanely well. Um, and, and most papers that are being published, they won't be needed once we have the next GPU generation available. Um, but there's also a lot of really interesting, really hard problems that people are working on where maybe there will only be a breakthrough in generalization every couple of years, but um, we still need all these intermediate papers as stepping stones. Um, and, and I think we still need some, some of these inductive biases. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess cool because at the end we will end up with, I think, a quite simple set of rules of very general rules. But like you probably want to learn a model of the environment. You probably want it to be causally correct. So you're not biased in that way. Um, you probably want to do planning with it in some way, but then there's a lot of details that where we can just throw, throw in the, the nearest state of the art neural network design, the nearest architecture, and then, and then run it on a lot of machines. And yeah, and, and I do think like, especially this is a bit separate, but also to, to the question you asked, um, cycling back to that, especially with model-based methods, it really seems like you can trade compute for, for data efficiency mm -hmm. um, to a pretty, pretty good extent. Um, not so much with model-free methods. Um, even if you have a big replay buffer for everything you've seen already, that experience will become more and more of policy. So it will be less and less helpful in, in improving your current decisions. But learning a world model on the replay buffer lets you generalize and fill in the trajectories that you haven't seen yet. Um, and you know it's not really clear how well that would fill in these things you haven't seen, but it seems like it's good enough that you can really crank up the compute and do more and more training, both for your model and your policy and, and get more sample efficiency. You, you do see hierarchical learning as sort of like one of these core nuts that we'll have to crack on the way, like there's, just compute doesn't get us around this? It'll be hard. There's one question of whether you want the temporal abstraction to be explicit in some mm. kind of structure that we understand as researchers or not. Um, and there might be clever ways that we haven't found yet for learning this um, implicitly somehow. Now, it's if you want to do explicit planning with it, then you need to have access to that structure. So I think it would be very useful if we could do that explicitly. Right. But there, there's probably also a way without that. Yeah, it kind of makes me think of like, you know, convolutional nets, obviously that's us encoding a prior that like really saves the, the deep learning system a ton of, a ton of time and kind of accelerates its learning. This it sort of feels like it's in the same vein, like what priors are we going to bake in? Um, I would imagine the counter argument to that is you look at transformers today and how essentially they're starting to replace convnets for vision and they're this very generalizable architecture. And that generality seems to be a feature and not a bug. Like in other words, it's the very fact that it can be used for you know, vision as well as text. We're seeing more and more multimodal systems that seem to be able to benefit from both things. Like do, does that play into, into this picture at all? I wouldn't necessarily say they are replacing vision systems. They are maybe replacing the high level vision systems. Right. Yeah. Um, because there the locality and the weight sharing isn't, isn't as useful anymore. Um, at lower, lower levels, I think convolutions are still, still the way to go. Although this keeps changing every day. So <laughs> yeah, that's, 
kind of hard to to keep track of everything but um yeah i mean transformers are yeah at the end of the day it's just a computationally efficient architecture and it lets you learn long long range dependencies and if we go back to the question of temporal abstraction well a lot of architectures we have are already doing some form of implicit temporal abstraction mm. if you just think of a gated rnn like a gru um, there's already a gate and if that gate is closed then the activation is copied over to the next time step and and so you can copy pretty easily for very long horizons and and so then you've preserved your information you can access your memories you can backprop through the whole thing it's you get good gradients back in time because the the state didn't change much um so your gradients don't uh, don't vanish or explode on the way back and and that's pretty good already if if you engineer everything right and you train it you know you have a good training set up there's no bugs you can already learn quite long-term dependencies um transformers are pretty similar if if we're talking about sequence modeling and long-term dependencies it's a bit like a i guess you could think of it as a neural turing machine where you have some you know like a um, a memory that you can write to and read from but the problem is it's really hard to tell whether a piece of information will become useful in the future you don't know yet so you don't want to learn to write it's really hard to learn writing relevant information so the transformer just writes everything at every time step and then you still do the read that attends back to the past um, so all these architectures are already pretty good at learning long-term dependencies um, but they don't let us use them for abstract planning and so i think there is a challenge there in making these architectures discrete Right? Like you have a sigmoid gate in a GRU. So the gate is never closed on, it's never open. It's always something in between. And it's very nice if you want to train your models with, with gradients, right? Because in, you're trying out everything at the same time to different amounts and the gradients can tell you do a bit more of that, close the gate a little bit until eventually you learn that it should be closed. Uh, so it really helps optimization. Um, but if you want to do um, abstract planning with it, then, then it would be it would be helpful to just have these be discrete decisions, so you know, you know, I can make a step now for fifteen steps. You right. Know, I just do one computation, and then that will account for fifteen steps at the lower level or something like that. Which would also make these systems more explainable, right? I mean, like that—that that seems to be a nice benefit if you could have an explicit architecture like that from a safety standpoint. Probably yes. Um, yeah, I think it would help. I'm not thinking too much about explainability at the moment because we're still so far away from solving the kinds of problems I would like to solve with these methods. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is a useful structure. And to your question about compute versus algorithms, I think it's it's general enough of a structure that it won't be replaced by compute too soon. That's a that's an interesting aspect too. I mean, you alluded to we're we're not we're not terribly close. How far do you think we are uh, from let's say? Hmm, this is always the difficult question. We're back to defining generality, but how far are we, would you say, from systems that broadly would be as competent as a human across, let's say, a wide range of tasks, if I can get away with that? <laughs> are we talking about an embodied system or are we okay with just a language model that we can talk to on the, on the computer? 
Um, I mean, I, I guess, so in, in my world model, those two would happen at around the same time, because if you have a language model that's as capable as a human, you could accelerate it and accelerate development, and then presumably like excel, like accelerate the development of embodied systems, like having a researcher on steroids. Um, but I could be, of course, very, very wrong. Perhaps, I mean, I, I mean, first of all, I think the progression will be gradual. It won't be overnight. Now this model is, you know, solves the problems, all of them, and before it didn't do anything. So it's getting better and better, and it's getting more useful along the way. And it's probably a long time until language models are good enough to do research for us. Um, because, I mean, I'm, yeah, there might be some, I'm not that deep into the NLP literature at the moment, but I would assume that the current current techniques we have are still pretty much is sure they can generalize in some cool ways, but it might still be hard to make up new information and verify that that information is actually correct and have some kind of um, um, some kind of logical reasoning emerge from just from just completing text, which to some extent does happen, but I think it's uh, you know maybe even one of these things where you want to build in some some prior knowledge to make sure that the logical reasoning is sound and it's not just mm. sound in 80% of the cases uh, where it has seen enough training examples for. So uh, at the end of the day, that, that would help you with generalization. And then that's really needed if you want to use it as a scientist, right? right. It's supposed to make up new, new knowledge that's correct. So uh, uh, it, it would have to have some really good generalization capabilities. And yeah, I mean, well, we're usually just testing these language models within the distribution of human text, right? That's already yeah. out there on the planet. And it generalizes well in that distribution, or it, it gets better and better at least. But um, maybe there is another algorithmic hop needed to generalize outside of that distribution and be a scientist. Yeah, yeah, I think that the temporal abstraction, also the kind of more logical reasoning um, and, and yeah, much better generalization capabilities i yeah i mean it's like we don't really need them if we train on on all of the internet of text um if we want to generalize within that distribution and i think that's where a lot of progress is happening right now um i'm i mean i'm sure you know there's so many good people working on it um we'll we'll definitely figure it out like absolutely probably within our lifetimes too um mm -hmm. but maybe not in the next 10 years <laughs> yeah well, yeah, and and that's the thing, right? This is like, I guess, all my all my takes about compute and and generality from language come from that bias. Um, so, so it really is, anyway, very informative to uh, to see a perspective from the RL side, which is something I've been trying to do a little bit more lately too, because it's the, the two communities are surprisingly non-overlapping at this point, and hopefully that'll change. Yeah, yeah, that would be cool. I think there is a bit. I mean, world models are bridging the gap to some extent yeah. because world models really just learn a good sequence model, ideally one with a good representation as well. So you can plan in your representational space. You don't have to generate new images during planning. Um, but yeah, other than that, it's really just, it's just a good sequence model and, and it's conditioned on actions. Sure. But that's, that, that won't hurt, hurt anybody. So yeah, I think there is a lot of overlap and there is a lot of, I, what I'm really excited about is that RL is really starting to be at a or be in a place where, you know, a couple of years ago, 
in supervised learning, there were all these tricks and like, you know, this is how you're, you're learning right schedule and you just use this normalization layer here mm. and you can train deeper networks and this all kind of worked. Um, whereas in RL, none of those things worked. They would all just destroy performance because it's already, the training process is already so noisy that training big models and training them in ways that, that they actually fit the data well could be a problem. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Collapsing in some way and everything was pretty brittle and unstable. Whereas now it really seems like we're more and more in a place where we can just import these functions from, from our favorite deep learning frameworks and, and scale things up and they scale roughly how we expect them to scale. On the safety side, so uh, there's obviously community of people quite worried about AI alignment risk and even up to catastrophic risk. We've had quite a few of them on our podcast from DeepMind, OpenAI, that sort of ecosystem. Um, I'm wondering, you're obviously more on the capability side, but I'm wondering like what kind of uh, exposure you've had to that, that kind of ecosystem, whether they overlap, like, yeah, what's the, almost the cultural overlap there? Is there any? Mm, yeah, yeah. I have a lot of friends um, who've, who know a lot more about safety, AI safety than I do. Uh, some of them working on it as their main topic as well. Um, I, I do also think it's a really important topic. Um, it's just, I guess, yeah, I mean, we might get there fairly soon with RL. That, that it really becomes relevant because right now not a lot of RL is deployed in the real world yet. Yeah. Right. Like, and I think that's the current transition that we're going through um, where there's, there's startups using reinforcement learning. Um, there are more and more things that are, that actually work well enough that we can uh, industrialize them and then um, safety considerations um, I think become more relevant, but yeah, I, I haven't spent that much time thinking about the, the safety of my Atari agents yet, because I, I want to play that. I want them to play Minecraft next and then afterwards, maybe something more in the real world. So, um, I just really appreciate the rundown, not just on your paper, your work, but the space as a whole, it's been a really cool opportunity to, to talk to somebody who knows a lot more about RL than I do. So I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. That was really fun.